If you are visiting Wickenburg, there's one place I suggest you stop to see. It's not that far out of the way at all. In fact, it's in the middle of downtown on Tegner Street right off of US 60 and just a stone's throw away from the US 93 junction. Because right there, just on the other side of a gas station, is a small parking lot. And if you pull in there, you'll find a tree. Seriously, stay with me. This tree is the whole reason I'm telling you to go there. Because the signage around this large 200-year-old mesquite tree proclaims it as the jail tree. The sign goes on to say that this tree was in service between 1863 and 1890, when the citizenry of Wickenburg was too busy mining to actually take time to build something as mundane as a jail. But mining towns still being known for their energetic atmospheres, another solution was needed to lock up drunks, criminals, and other disturbers of the peace. So, the solution was simple. Shackle them to the jail tree. Here they would sit until either they sobered up, paid for their crimes, or a lawman could be sent for to retrieve them. Wickenburg has done the most, by far, to capitalize on this odd bit of Western heritage, but jail trees like this were not exactly a rarity. You'll find record of them in ghost towns across southern Arizona, such as Gleason and Paradise in Cochise County and Ruby down in Santa Cruz County. In Tubac, you'll find displayed a post in the ground with attached leg irons that had once been used to affix prisoners to the mast of a Spanish ship. And in Aravaca, the updated version of this is metal bars embedded in concrete with chains extending from them. As you might have gathered by now, the need for law and order on the frontier was real. But like pretty much everything else from the Old West, the form that order took was a lot more utilitarian and unforgiving than what we know today. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 129 Law and Order, Part 1. The Lawmen. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you are thoroughly rested after our exhaustive series on the Pleasant Valley War, the longest miniseries I've done to date, and the last one for a while. That I know of, at least. Who knows what rabbit hole I'll fall down next. I mean, today started off as one episode, and now I'm finding myself splitting it into two. But following the violent conflict in the Tonto Basin, I want to return to something briefly touched upon in those episodes, and that has actually been on my mind ever since we began our series on the shootout at the OK Corral last year. And that is the idea of frontier justice. What I mean is, when you are surrounded by one group of men who left so-called civilization because they found it too constrictive— and another group of men who left so-called civilization because they were overly ambitious and wanted to build it for themselves in a new spot, how do you handle when those two things collide? Now, growing up, I saw enough westerns to know the formula. You know, bad men shooting up the town, then a reluctant but surprisingly adept good guy steps up to help the town out. However, as with most things in life, 
the conventions of movies are just plain wrong. For example, before the advent of smokeless gunpowder in the 1890s, black powder was standard, and so each shot sent up plumes of black, acrid smoke. This not only added to the confusion of any gun battle, according to state historian Marshall Trimble, but because of the chemical makeup of black powder, a lot of gunshot wounds actually developed gangrene. And I mentioned this back when we covered the Earps and the Clantons firing at each other, but we also have to remember that the shootout, especially those at high noon, are definitely another convention of Hollywood. Trimble also points out that the quick draw made famous in Western movies was also just not a thing. Speed was good, but accuracy was much better. Usually by the time the shooting started, the typical lawman had had his gun out for quite some time already. Author Eduardo Obregón Pagán builds on this idea in his book Valley of the Guns when he points out that more men died in the Pleasant Valley War from resisting arrest, or ostensibly resisting arrest, than were killed by any single Tewksbury or Graham. Law enforcement at the time, he says, was hyper-aggressive because of the danger of the job. When faced with a potential threat, they much rather shoot first and ask questions later. That is, if they bother to ask questions at all. And perhaps no one encapsulated this as much as Commodore Perry Owens. First and foremost, Commodore was not a rank, nor was it an honorific. He was born in Tennessee on July 29, 1852, with Commodore Perry as his actual given name. Most sources will tell you that he was named after Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry, the celebrated hero of the Battle of Lake Erie during the War of 1812. But at least one source says there's a chance he was named after Commodore Matthew C. Perry, who so famously forced open Japanese ports in the same year that Owens was born. His father was apparently an abusive man, and so by the age of 16, Owens had fled from home to first the Indian Territories, or modern Oklahoma, but then to Texas, New Mexico, and finally, Arizona. Here he is said to have landed at Navajo Springs, where he acted as a cowboy and teamster, including for Jim Houck, the man who would later take the credit-slash-blame for killing Billy Graham. During this period in his life, Owens built up a reputation as being quick and deadly with a gun, something that he displayed toward any Navajo that threatened him. Or didn't threaten him, really. By one estimate, Owens killed about 25 Navajo for various reasons over the course of his life. And the consensus seems to be that most of these were not what we would call justified in the least. One newspaper would later write, quote, Commodore Owens, it was often said, would shoot not only at the drop of a hat, but before the hat was dropped, end quote. Owens had a slight build with blue eyes, brown hair, and a fair complexion, but he really stood out because he grew his hair down to his mid-back, far longer than pretty much any other man people had ever seen. Though one source did claim that he only let his hair grow when he was a good distance from a barber, but this is how people remember him. Obregón Pagán says that he also stood out because he didn't drink, gamble, or womanize either. But folks had learned never to underestimate him, or his skill when resorting to violence, which he did a lot to solve his problems. 
And it was on the basis of this fearsome reputation that he was elected sheriff for Apache County in 1886. One of his first acts was actually sending a deputy after Ike and Phineas Clanton, who had moved to Apache County while trying to escape Wyatt Earp's vendetta ride following the death of Morgan and the maiming of Virgil. But what I want to really focus on is something I hinted at during our series on the Pleasant Valley War. The final fate of the outlaw Andy Cooper. After the killing of John Tewksbury and William Jacobs in September 1887, Cooper left Pleasant Valley and headed toward Holbrook. As we mentioned before, Holbrook was not the nicest of towns at this point in history, and yet Cooper still managed to make a splash when he arrived, with witnesses later saying that he boasted openly about having killed John Tewksbury and some other man down in Pleasant Valley. That got folks in town talking. So, they went to see Owens. Many of them felt that the sheriff should have gone after such a notorious outlaw much earlier. In fact, he had been ridiculed by a local paper, and whispers were going around that he might actually be afraid of Cooper. Shortly before Cooper had gone off to Pleasant Valley, the two had actually met on the street in a cordial meeting where Owens had said that he had no warrant for Cooper's arrest. However, there apparently was one complaint about the theft of some Navajo horses from the spring of 1886 that Owens had not served, either because there had been a lack of witnesses, or he didn't carry it on him, or that Cooper just refused to come in for it. So the same day that Cooper was in town bragging about killing two people, Owens arrived back in town. With the public gossiping about him being yellow, or perhaps with an ultimatum from the County Board of Supervisors, Owens decided that it was high time to serve that old warrant. He went alone, turning down all other offers for help. One source says that some civilians offered to assist him, while another says his own deputy wanted to come along. But on the morning of September 4th, 1887, Owens, sporting a freshly cleaned loaded rifle, approached the three-room house, that was owned by the Blevins family. It's been a while, so I feel I should remind everyone that Cooper's real name was Andy Blevins, and so this house was full of family, including his mother, two brothers, two sisters, and assorted guests. There were possibly up to 11 people in the home at the time that Owens decided to serve this warrant. After the sheriff knocked at the door, it was opened by either Cooper himself or his sister who was carrying her eight-month-old baby. If his sister did open the door first, then it was a quick moment before she summoned Andy. Cooper came to the door, but kept it open only enough for him to stick his head out. And here is the first bit of disagreement. Owen's statement was that Cooper came to the door, revolver in his hand. His family, however, would later testify that he had been unarmed. Owens told Andy that he was serving the warrant for the stolen horses, but Cooper either told him to wait a moment or that he wouldn't go. And if you believe the sheriff, this is when the outlaw started to raise his gun. Quick as lightning, Owens' own rifle flashed as he shot Cooper through the door, striking the man in his abdomen. Still alive at this point, Cooper went down, but that's when the rest of his family sprung into action. Cooper's brother, John Blevins, had been standing at a second door into the home that opened up just a few feet from where Owens was standing. 
Seeing Cooper go down, John opened this door and fired, but missed the sheriff and actually hit and killed Cooper's horse, which was tied up behind Owens. Turning quickly, Owens shot from the hip and struck John in the shoulder before heading out into the street to get a better view of all entrances and exits. From this position, he could see a crouched Cooper through a window, and it looked like he still had his gun in his hand. As Cooper moved away from the window, Owens shot through the house to where he guessed Cooper was and successfully struck him again. And this time, Andy went down and he would not get back up. Out of a side window jumped a man named Motor Mose Roberts. Some witnesses claimed that he had a gun in his hands, others said that he was unarmed, but they all agreed that he was trying to get away. Owens would fire again, striking Roberts in the back, severely wounding him. Then, in the most tragic twist of this entire story, the front door flew open again as 15-year-old Samuel Houston Blevins, Cooper's younger brother, came out with Andy's pistol in his hand. At this, Cooper's mother, who had just lost her husband Mart and other son Hamp down in Pleasant Valley, yelled out for Owens to stop. But it was too late. The lawman only saw the flash of gunmetal as Samuel raised the revolver to fire. Owens again shot from the hip. Samuel fell backward, dead at his mother's feet. The whole shootout had lasted under a minute, with Owens shooting a total of five rounds. Samuel died immediately, with his brother Andy following him a day later. Roberts, shot through the lung, would actually languish in agony for 11 days before eventually succumbing to his wounds. Subsequent inquests would clear Owens of any wrongdoing, and the ruling was that the deaths were justified, but this was long disputed by the family. Though at the time Owens became something of a legend for taking care of the nefarious outlaw Andy Cooper, he would actually lose his re-election bid for sheriff, which seems to be because he was good at shooting, but not at any of the bureaucratic parts of his job. He would go on to hold other law enforcement jobs in Arizona before retiring in Seligman, where he would live out the rest of his life, outside of a brief time spent in San Diego. One last note about this incident before we move on is the later career of the Blevins house. On January 6, 1975, future governor and then newly elected state attorney general Bruce Babbitt would choose the front porch of the Blevins house to be sworn in. And just in case you are interested, you can still visit the Blevins house, which has a large sign and an unfortunately not related historical marker in the front of this property near Joy Nevin and 2nd Street in Holbrook. Now that we have cough cough dispensed with Andy Cooper, it's time to follow up with another participant in the Pleasant Valley War, Jim Roberts. Roberts was a staunch Tewksbury ally that we've actually mentioned before in episode 125. He was that friend that woke up in the morning to see Graham Partisan sneaking up on the Tewksbury's encampment. It's the consensus of most, both then and now, that Roberts was the surest shot and the deadliest gun in the entire conflict. Following the war, however, he, in the words of author Don Dedera, was another one of the participants that graduated to the right side of the law. In 1889, he was commissioned as a deputy in Yavapai County to oversee the mining town of Jerome by the famous Prescott resident, Bucky O'Neill. 
A native of Missouri and a Civil War veteran, William O'Neill had eventually settled in Prescott in 1882, where he had a career as a journalist and member of a local militia. He acquired the nickname Bucky from his tendency to bet against the house while playing pharaoh, which was known at the time as Bucking the Tiger. In 1888, he was elected sheriff, a position that he would hold until 1894. Unfortunately, Bucky's term in office isn't filled with the kind of salacious callers that make the history books. Though in March 1889, he and three deputies were engaged in tracking down four robbers that had held up a train at Canyon Diablo. This group chased the men more than 300 miles into southern Utah, where they would get into a shootout. However, despite more than 50 bullets being exchanged, the only thing that happened was one of the robbers' horses was wounded. The train robbers would actually try to flee on foot, but would soon be captured by the posse. O'Neill would later go on to serve a term as mayor of Prescott, though his real claim to fame is that in 1898, he would head off to the Spanish-American War, a captain in the Rough Riders. Yes, those Rough Riders. O'Neill would actually become the only member of the Rough Riders to die in the conflict after taking a bullet on July 1st, 1898. Originally interred on the slopes of San Juan Hill, his body was later transported, aboard a ship called the Crook, by the way, and was interred in Arlington Cemetery. If you visit Prescott's Courthouse Plaza today, you can find a monument to O'Neill and the Rough Riders, with a statue created by a man named Solon Borglum, which I only bring up because Solon's older brother, Gutson, was the guy that carved Mount Rushmore. Okay, long digression about Bucky O'Neill over. Let's turn back to the man he hired to be his deputy overseeing Jerome. Law enforcement would be Jim Roberts' career for the next four and a half decades, and he would be hired to oversee towns such as Congress, Douglas, Jerome, and Clarksdale. Though he didn't drink, gamble, or swear, he still built himself a ferocious reputation as a man who could get the job done. State historian Marshall Trimble tells the story of how once he had to approach three gunmen holed up on the outskirts of Jerome. A deputy had come to join him, so Roberts told the young man to take the one in the middle, and he would take care of the other two. But after noticing that the young man's hands were shaking, Roberts dismissed the deputy, saying that he would handle the situation himself. Within minutes, all three gunmen had been shot down. As time went on, Roberts became something of a curiosity, especially after the advent of Western films, because, to put it simply, Roberts didn't look like a Western hero. He didn't wear cowboy boots or a pistol in a holster, preferring to keep it instead in his coat pocket, and he rode a mule into work each day. However, in 1928, after nearly 30 years on the job, Roberts proved once more what a true Western lawman was like. He was in Clarksdale at the time, making his normal rounds, when two men robbed the Bank of Arizona for $40,000. Jumping into a waiting car that they had filled with weapons, nails, and cans of cayenne pepper to ward off any potential pursuers, the pair started making their escape. Which is when they made their fatal mistake. One of them took a pot shot at the 71-year-old Roberts, who had just come around the corner. Without hesitating, 
Roberts drew his nickel-plated pistol from that pocket and, gripping the handle with both hands, let off a shot. The driver never knew what hit him. He crumpled over the steering well, and in Dedera's version of the story, the car proceeded to crash into the side of Clarksdale High School. The students inside got a real good look as Roberts walked up to the crash vehicle and snapped handcuffs on the remaining robber. Supposedly, this incident made him late for lunch at home, and when his wife asked what had kept him, he replied simply that there'd been some trouble downtown. Roberts would die in 1934 at the age of 78. Many sources comment that he was a very taciturn man who didn't enjoy speaking that much. He was also known to shut up tighter than a drum if anyone asked him about the Pleasant Valley War. One story, that I can't verify, mind you, is that Hollywood producers knocked on his door one day and asked him to be a consultant on the film version of Zane Grey's To the Last Man. Despite the very attractive cash offer, Roberts turned them down. The reason? He had given his word not to say anything about the conflict, and a man should keep his word until the day he died. Guys, Wyatt Earp may get all the press, but Jim Roberts might be my pick for greatest all-time Western lawman. From Roberts, I want to go back to Prescott and the man that succeeded Bucky O'Neill as the Yavapai County Sheriff. His name was George Ruffner, and he would serve a total of five non-consecutive terms before dying in the office in 1933. Among his claims to fame is that he helped organize the famous Prescott Rodeo, the world's oldest, don't you know? He also apparently won a funeral home in a game of Pharaoh in 1902, and thereafter he offered taxpayers a package deal, according to Trimble. He would shoot bad guys, then embalm and bury them as well. One memorable antic from his time in office was the hunting down of the obscure criminal Fleming Parker. Parker and Ruffner were actually acquaintances, having been cowboys together before their paths had diverged. Ruffner to become a sheriff, and Parker heading to a five-year prison sentence in San Quentin on a burglary charge. Everyone recognized that Parker did have one talent. He was very good with horses. After getting out of the pokey, he scraped together enough money to buy several horses to get his life back together. Unfortunately, one day two of his animals got loose and wandered onto the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad track and were killed by a passenger train near Peach Springs. When the railroad offered an insultingly low recompense for his dead animals, Parker's anger got the better of him, and he decided to rob the train at the same location. Ruffner was informed, and several days later, he had his old acquaintance behind bars in Prescott. Still, things weren't looking too bad for Parker. The public was sympathetic to his plight with the railroad, and the sheriff knew and liked him personally. He could have gotten off with a light sentence had he not tried to make a break for it. But he did manage to break out of jail, but killed a deputy district attorney in the process. Now really deep in it, Parker and two accomplices tried to split town, but Parker doubled down and stole Ruffner's prized white horse, Shershot, to make his getaway. Now, the sheriff had been out of town investigating another crime, but instantly raced back to Prescott when he got the news. 
Gathering a posse, he tracked the group north, managing to capture one in Chino Valley. Parker tried to throw off his ability to track him by reversing the shoes on SureShot, but the horse eventually went lame and he had to be ditched. Finally, Ruffner caught up with Parker north of Flagstaff and put him on a train back to Prescott. However, by this time, the sympathetic public had turned decidedly against Parker and a welcoming committee had gathered to celebrate his return with a noose. Ruffner had to actually take Parker off the train before it entered Prescott and then sneak him into the jail. When this welcoming committee learned that the murderer had somehow made it into town, they marched on the jail and demanded that Ruffner turn over Parker. Touting his shotgun, the sheriff answered that he wasn't going to do that and everyone should just head on home. The mob did eventually disperse and Parker was sent to trial, where he was found guilty and sentenced to be hanged. The night before his death, he made two requests of Ruffner. The first was that Ruffner would be the one to actually hang him, so he could be sent out of this life by someone that he respected. The second was that Ruffner would go down to Whiskey Row and find a certain Madam of the Evening for Parker's last night on Earth. And the sheriff would fulfill both of these requests. One last story from this incident is that, according to territorial law, a certain number of witnesses had to be present for an execution, but Ruffner had forgotten to send out invitations. So instead, he dealt people a playing card from his personal deck, and only those with those cards were allowed to this hanging. The last lawman I want to talk about had an unusual tenure in several different ways. His name was Henry Garfias, and he would become one of Phoenix's first constables and its first town marshal. What made Garfias so unusual, especially for Phoenix, is that he was Hispanic. Little is known about his early life, but it appears his father was an old soldier from the Mexican-American War. At some point, the family had moved to Anaheim, California, and it's from there that Garfias would move to Arizona, perhaps first to Wickenburg, but it's possible he also just moved straight to Phoenix. But by 1874, he was in the Salt River Valley, and records over the next several years show him working as an interpreter for the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, or for digging a grave to bury a pauper, for example. In 1878, he would run for, and win, one of only two slots as a constable in the Phoenix Precinct. This position was not exactly glamorous. He was paid for delivering warrants, notices, and other court orders, in addition to some minor law enforcement duties. But six months into the job, he distinguished himself in the case of the Saber Slasher. On June 1st, 1879, a man on a horse wielding a saber went slashing through a crowd that had gathered for a horse race along Washington Street before galloping straight out of town. Once a warrant had been issued for this man, either named Jesus Romero or Oviedo, depending on where you're getting the story from, Garfias and another man went after him. Again, the source you choose makes this story more mundane or more dramatic, with the pair either finding their man near San Javier del Bac, or, if you believe early state historian James H. McClintock, Garfias trailed him down into Sonora and then boldly entered a den of cutthroats to get his man. Either way, this incident would propel him into a second term as constable, 
and when Phoenix became incorporated, he ran for town marshal, which sort of combined the roles of police officer, assessor, tax collector, road commissioner, and dog catcher all into one. Garfias would become Phoenix's first town marshal, a post he would keep for five consecutive one-year terms. Now, he would have his hands full with not only the job, but constant debates and changes to how he was compensated for his tasks, with many, at first, arguing that he was too well paid for his services. But he stuck with it, and his resume is littered with a laundry list of tasks, such as overseeing a chain gang to keep the town site clean, inspecting old flues and chimneys within Phoenix, and tearing down any walls deemed to be a hazard. He was also called upon to be the point person during a smallpox epidemic, overseeing the treating physician and keeping the illness from spreading. And, like I mentioned, he was basically a dog catcher, though they didn't really keep strays in the pound if you catch my drift. At one point, he took up ad space in the newspaper to say that all dogs without ownership tags would be moving to a farm upstate. He wasn't joking. Soon enough, he had put down about 40 stray animals. And somewhere between all of this, he also started publishing a Spanish-language newspaper called El Progreso. But the real reason for covering Garfias right now is because during his second tenure as town marshal, word was received that some rowdy Texans were shooting up the town along Washington Street. Gathering up a posse, which included Bucky O'Neill, by the way, they rode to meet the three men, with Garfias identifying himself as a peace officer and telling them to stand down. One of them responded by firing at Garfias, who instantly shot back, striking the Texan in the hand. The Texans then wheeled their horses around to flee, and a chase ensued, with both the posse and the Texans firing at each other. The one that had tried to shoot Garfias eventually fell from his horse, while the other two abandoned their steeds to try to hide in the streets. But within a few hours, all of them had been found and apprehended. Garfias would be celebrated by the entire community for this act of bravery, which would also consequently catapult him into his third term as town marshal. Now, eventually he would lose his bid for his sixth term, but he continued to live in Phoenix and did odd jobs here and there, including another term as constable, before dying in 1896. At the time of his passing, Garfias was well-recognized and well-thought-of in the community he had called home for more than 20 years. In fact, when he got married for a third time in 1891, the announcement said, quote, He is so well-known that it is useless to tell who he is. Every man, woman, and child in the county knows him. End quote. And then when he died, one obituary read that he was, quote, One of the bravest men who ever was known in this region of brave men. End quote. This is notable, bordering on remarkable, because as I've mentioned before, Phoenix was a town that prided itself on its Americanness and its whiteness. To have a Hispanic man not only be its first town marshal, but then to be the toast of the town and so fondly remembered was, at the time, unprecedented. So I'm glad I had the chance to highlight him here and in my own small way, keep the memory of Henry Garfias going. But I'm going to leave things here for this week. So join me next week as we look at the other side of the coin. Today we covered lawmen, 
But in the next episode, it's time to talk about the outlaws as we explore the various ways that lawlessness could and did take root across the territory. However, before I go, I just wanted to send a huge thank you to those of you who were kind enough to donate to the podcast over the last couple of weeks. I'm awed by your generosity, and your support is always appreciated, whether it be by just simply listening or sending a few dollars my way. So, once again, thank you. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.